Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. The former International Development Secretary Rory Stewart spoke at an event at St James's Piccadilly in London on Monday. It was organised by Christian Aid. Stewart, who is standing as an independent candidate to be Mayor of London, was in conversation with the journalist Edward Sturton. Stewart was asked about the government's record on international aid and Britain's place in the world, among other things. What follows is an edited recording of the event. It's a fascinating conversation. And don't forget, the second Theology Slam final takes place on Thursday the 26th of March at St John's Hoxton in central London. For more information and to book tickets, go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash theology hyphen slam. If you want to see the envy, you just have to look at the career of our, our guest tonight. Um, he's still well the right side of 50. He's been a soldier, a diplomat, an epic walker, a deputy governor in Iraq, run a charity in Kabul, an MP, and as we've heard, a cabinet minister. And of course now he's an independent candidate to be mayor of London, campaigning with a slightly unusual technique of asking himself to stay with the voters giving a whole new meaning to the idea of sleeping your way to the top. Um, Roy Stewart, I suppose your job as International Development Secretary is the one that's most relevant to this organisation, perhaps to this audience too. One of your predecessors, an old university friend, said to me that it was quite simply the best job in the world. Is that what you found? Um, Unfortunately not. This role of Secretary of State for International Development on the surface is, of course, as Edward says, one of the great dream roles of the world. Uh, You have, very unusually, as a British government minister, access to an incredible amount of money, £14 billion a year, and no restrictions on how you can spend it. And nobody in the Treasury is allowed to take the money away from you because it's 0.7% of our GNI in the hands of the International Development Secretary. Obviously, for somebody like me who'd been a minister in DEFRA and a minister in the Ministry of Justice and a minister in the Foreign Office, all of whom were very short of money, to some extent, this was an extraordinary thing. However, however, uh, in fact, international development is a very, very strange business. And I'm going to talk about just two quick things about the strangest of the business. The first is that £14 billion sounds like an enormous amount of money, but in fact, in relation to the countries in which you're operating, it isn't as much as you'd think. Pakistan and Nigeria were our two biggest programs, so about £400 million a year in Nigeria, £400 million a year in Pakistan. That sum of money sounds enormous, but it is in fact only 1% of the budget of the Pakistan Armed Forces. It is only about 0.1% of the GDP of Nigeria. So in fact, in terms of the leverage it actually gives you over countries of that scale, it's rather limited. The second issue is an issue about implementation, about action, and about delivering things on the ground. The problem for DFID is that there is an enormous amount of money, but very, very few staff. So if you go to Zambia, for example, the Germans, through the German Development Agency, will have about 150 staff on the ground. DFID, lucky if it has 11 or 12, dealing with an enormous budget. And increasingly, very few people who are health advisors or education advisors, in other words, very few people with detailed understanding of what is actually happening 
deep in the field, increasingly people who are essentially managing contracts and increasingly locked in embassy compounds. I remember in South Sudan saying to our humanitarian advisor that I'd like him to spend at least 50% of his life outside the office in the field and getting a very hollow laugh back. It's sort of so unimaginable for the humanitarian advisor in South Sudan to be spending half the time in the field. So for the Secretary of State for International Development, actually, I felt a deep, deep sense of frustration, a deep sense of a world in which there was a lot of strategy, a lot of high-level jargon, a lot of statements about poverty, about governance, about accountability, but a real difficulty reassuring myself that what we were actually doing in the health clinic on the ground in Nigeria was really making a difference to people's lives. I want to ask you what you make of recent developments around that job, because we've had a reshuffle. The new Secretary of State has a record of being a bit skeptical about the value of aid, indeed has, I think, supported the idea that charity begins at home. What do you think that reshuffle tells us about the direction this government is likely to take on this issue? I worked for Priti Patel, who I think had quite similar views, uh, potentially to Anne-Marie on this, or at least on the record of what Anne-Marie says. Um, I think there is a decent way of asking, testing questions about international aid, and then there is a bad way of doing it, right? So I think we should all begin in this room with the fundamental observation that we have a profound moral obligation towards people who are much, much poorer than Britain is. And that we ought to be working morning, noon, and night to think about how we can engage with those people and transform their lives. So I am not a charity begins at home person. But we should also be able to point out that the record of international development over the last 40 years has been very, very uh, uncertain. And we should be open and transparent and brutal with ourselves about the things that have gone wrong. For example, uh, we have had very, very major development programs in Malawi over the last 40 years. But Malawi is actually no wealthier today than it was 40 years ago. In fact, in some indicators, it's less well off than it was 60 years ago. And we need to ask ourselves, what went wrong? How were we able to spend all this money, we and many other people, and have such little result. Uh, to look at one particular issue in Malawi, we boasted enormously that we got almost 90% of girls into primary school. And yet, at the end of seven years of education, over 80% of those girls are unable to read or write. Right? They're not literate. That is something we need to take very seriously. It's a very powerful fact because we tend to stop as uh, international development community with targets. And the conservative government was a real one for targets. So they would say our target is to get 100 million girls into school. Getting 100 million girls into school is irrelevant if at the end of seven years you are not learning to read or write. Uh, really irrelevant, and I mean this in a very tough way. People will push back and say, oh no, but maybe them being in school for seven years, even if they don't learn to read or write, is good because it stops child marriage. It might be good for other things. Nonsense. If you're putting somebody in a school, they ought to be able to learn to read and write at the end of that seven years. So 
I don't like the conservative tradition that questions whether we should be helping people in other countries. I don't like the tradition that suggests that we should not have an obligation to poorer people. But at the same time, we need to be confident enough to say a lot of what we do isn't good enough while still being proud of the idea of helping people in other countries. But just pursuing that, that example, is that something that we can actually have an impact on? Or is that getting us too deeply into other countries' business? I mean, actually making sure that what happens in the schools is what we'd like to happen in the schools. One, 100%, 100%. We need to set minimum standards. So one of the debates here, and, and this goes to the heart of our problems, is about quantity against quality. If you are trying to get 100 million girls into school, there will be huge pressure on you to try to spend as little as possible on each child to get the maximum number of children into school. But you have to set a minimum standard beneath which it is not worth doing it. If you have to spend, let's say, $60 a head instead of $50 a head, and I'm talking about $60 a year, so that you actually have a better educational result and accept that that will mean that you are getting one-fifth less children into school, you should do it. The same is true with a clinic. Right? I've seen clinics funded by the British government. I've turned up in, in rural Kaduna and turned up in clinics where I've arrived and there has been human excrement on the floor, no sheets on the beds, a fan but the nearest electricity 10 miles away, no medicines on the shelves, and very few patients mad enough to go anywhere near this clinic. Right? This is not worth doing. Right? Do things properly. Set a minimum quality standard and own it. I mean, I think the, if there was one message for government, it's take responsibility. Take responsibility. If you're putting gift of the British people or UK aid over the door of a clinic, own that clinic feel shame about if it isn't working. Right? And that goes to every problem, I think, in domestic government, too. We live in a system that is not taking responsibility. We've become incredibly good at blaming other people, blaming resource cuts, blaming the system, blaming the structure, instead of saying, the buck stops here, this is mine. And with those strictures in mind, returning again to this government, what do you make of the constant suggestions that pop up in the press clearly quite well-sourced leaks suggesting that your old job is going to be downgraded, made part of the Foreign Office, and that the, the whole effort in itself uh, at the same time is going to be taken less seriously. Well, I, I think the problem with that is if I was looking for one institution to take over another, I would probably want DFID to take over the Foreign Office rather than Foreign <laughs> Office to take over DFID. <coughs> now, the reason for that is that, and this is no criticism of the poor Foreign Office, but the truth of the matter is that DFID has been lucky over the last 15 years to get much more investment, has been much more lucky at being able to attract civil servants, has had much less political pressure, and if it is about managing a £14 billion budget, specifically, DFID has the skills the Foreign Office doesn't. So putting an ambassador in charge of an enormous budget is a mistake. Ambassadors are good at political work. They should be doing political work. They should speak other people's languages fluently. They should be understanding information on what's happening in the cabinet in Indonesia. But we should not kid ourselves that they can manage a health program in rural Nigeria. And if we try to make them do that, we're going to end up with very bad results. 
Well, one suggestion that I pick up, and I'd be interested to know whether you are hearing this too, is that that budget that you mentioned will indeed be protected, the 7%, the 14 billion. Yep. But that the rules about what counts as aid might be changed. That, as it was suggested to me, that you could spend more of it on bullets and less on babies, for example. Is that something you hear at all, and would it worry you if that is doing the rounds in Whitehall? Um, no, I mean... <laughs> Uh, if you start spending that money on bullets rather than babies, you've missed the point of what that money is there to do, right? Um, this, this, uh, look, if, if what the government is saying is they want to spend 3% of their budget on defense, diplomacy, and development, and they're going to fund that money, it's going to be fungible money, then be straightforward about it. Don't, don't call it international development if you're spending it on soldiers, right? The, the point about international development is to have funds available which are genuinely designed to try to engage with issues of poverty and, for my money, environment, climate change, and education, health, right? And I'd like us to see, do more thoughtful things with infrastructure, but that's, that's the space we're talking about, not the space of every other idea that you can come up with when you want to talk about doing things in other people's countries. Um, however, I do think there is something to be said for the idea that we could make our engagement with other people's countries more personal and more connected to what we do in Britain. Christian aid, incidentally, if you don't support Christian aid, you should support Christian aid. Let me put that on record, right? Very, very good organization. It's a very good organization because it's very good at doing development projects in other people's countries, but it is also a very good organization because it keeps a very good grassroots connection to British citizens and to people here in Britain. So, I would like us to learn, for example, from the Scotland uh, in Malawi partnership which is a wonderful partnership where the Scottish government, with very little money, has thought about how to map the thousands of organizations in Scotland that work in Malawi, ranging from music festivals to initiatives in the Orkneys to connections through David Livingston, and created the rich human connections that bind Scotland to Malawi. The danger with DFID is it becomes a little bit technocratic and a little bit distant, and it behaves a little bit like the World Bank. And it sees itself as a group of rather distant experts, very few of them spending colossal sums of money, and it loses what it is going to need actually to keep going. To defend the 0.7%, we need to make the 0.7% come alive for people in Britain. We need to be more human. We need to be less technocratic. We need people, including volunteers, including small charities, including people in Britain, to feel what those connections are and to feel how they can be helpful, how individual British citizens can be helpful. Don't make this too fancy and too expert and too technocratic. There's a danger that we create a world where we say, oh, this stuff of international development is so scientific, so expert, so technocratic, that we have no time for the voluntary efforts of people from Britain. Right? This is a very dangerous route to go down, because actually an enormous amount of useful work that can be done internationally can be done 
with people from Britain, with volunteers, with their ideas, with their creativities, with their cultural connections, and DFID will be richer for it. But to do it, DFID needs more staff. The stupidest thing DFID has done is to cut the number of staff so that generally about one and a half percent, two percent of its budget is spent on staff. This is completely mad. Right? No functioning organization in the world tries to run itself with so few staff. It should be spending a minimum of 10 percent of its budget on staff. If it spent 10 percent of its budget on staff, it could begin to be much more thoughtful of all the different connections it could create between these countries and the United Kingdom, between volunteers and the United Kingdom and these countries. It's trying to be too efficient. But just to be clear, you reject any idea that aid could be used, as well as giving aid, to, to forward Britain's economic or foreign policy objectives, which seems to be the idea that floats around. Well, I, think, uh, I think thoughtful, good development programmes can work in an uncomplicated way with an embassy to find win-wins. I don't see any problem at all if we are running projects that we are proud of in a country. Let's say we are in Ghana or in Botswana or in Zambia and we are running projects that we're genuinely proud of in health and education. I have no problem at all with the British ambassador and the British people taking some credit for that. This is contributions of 14 billion pounds a year from the British people. And they have every right to feel goodwill, support and get benefit from that. Uh, I don't mind that at all. And a thoughtful engagement can bring those things together. And I'm very confident that most of the people in those countries receiving the money have no problem at all with the fact that we've given the money and that we should expect uh, to, for people to be aware of it and to us to have good relations. That's completely different from using the money uh, to buy bullets, right? But I, I'm not ashamed if Britain funds a hospital in another country to say this is a British hospital and to uh, be proud of the fact it's a British hospital. I don't think that's something to worry about. One of the things you said when you took over the job was that you wanted to put climate change, the climate change crisis, I think you called it, at the heart of development work. How does that link operate? Okay, so that was a big struggle, oddly. So the first thing I did when I came to DFIT, I'm very lucky when I came into DFIT because I'd spent nearly 20 years working in different ways connected to international development, and I'd been a DFID minister, junior minister in DFID for the Middle East Asia, and then the junior DFID minister for Africa. So by the time I took over as the Secretary of State, uh, I was able to move quite quickly. Right? I understood what the two things I wanted to do were. One of those was to double the amount that DFID spent on climate and the environment. Very, very striking that DFID had stayed out of this space. So the first thing I did was to increase to two billion pounds a year the amount we spend on climate and environment. If we are in the middle of a climate crisis, it seemed insane that DFID, with all this money from British taxpayers, was not really leaning into this space. However, it was more of a fight than you would think. There are lots of economists who are very, very worried about talking about climate and environment and are worried that you're taking money away from poor people today for the benefit of poor people in the future. This, I think, is a mistake. If we do not get our response to climate and the environment right, there will be 100 million more poor people within 10 years. Right? It's a very, very short-sighted thinking. And DFID ought to be able to have expertise in this, lead on this. We're about to host the climate conference here in London. That was a huge missed opportunity. But there are other fights too, right? The second thing that I had a fight with in DFID is that we were still, through our various agencies, funding shale oil 
and dirty petroleum oil generation in places like Senegal? Again, the answer was, oh no, but these are very poor countries, they need energy, so we need to fund these things. Nonsense. There is absolutely no reason on earth why DFID money, you know, money that is designed for philanthropic purposes from the British taxpayer, should be used to fuel dirty shale oil projects in Senegal. If we're going to invest in electricity generation, invest in renewable energy generation. It's not as though there is far too much money around for renewable energy generation. Let's put our money to work there. And actually, the private sector can pick up the bill if they insist on pushing ahead with big fossil fuel stuff. Crazy, crazy for us to be running climate programs on the one hand and on the other hand to be generating more and more carbon emissions. Well, you mentioned the, the COP meeting this year, and I suppose that raises the question of whether, in your view, this government is as serious about climate change as it should be, particularly the Prime Minister. Well, it remains to be seen. I don't yet feel there is the ambition and the energy, and I'd like to see it. I want Britain to take the lead on this. We've decided to host this. Maybe we shouldn't have decided to host this. We decided to host this. Actually, we should be hosting it in London, but I would say that anyway. Um, uh, but anyway, we've decided to host this. And we must take the global lead on this. Look what Paris did with that. That was an extraordinary achievement. There is absolutely no reason why London cannot do better than Paris. And the only reason that we will not do better than Paris, at a time when it is even more important than Paris, because another four years has passed, and we're another four years closer to a 3% rise in global mean temperature, is lack of political will. Lack of energy, lack of imagination, lack of dedication. This is, for me, one of the two litmus tests of this government is their ability to deliver something which is at least as exciting and ideally more important than the Paris Cup. And what do you make of the management of it so far, particularly the sacking of Claire Perry O'Neill, who was running it, and when she was sacked, said firstly that it was a bit of a shambles, and secondly, memorably about the Prime Minister's promises said, get it in writing, get a lawyer to look at it, and make sure the money's in the bank. Fair? Uh, well, um, <laughs> I, I uh, firstly, I, I like Claire very much. I think she was a good environment minister. Um, I think they didn't think enough clearly about who they wanted in that role, and I think it presumably is something that they also feel sorry for, that they appointed someone who they then decided they didn't want. So you, you don't take that as a mark of not being serious about the whole project? It was um, I, I was surprised, probably, that they chose to appoint someone who wasn't a Secretary of State in the first place, or an ex-Secretary of State. So uh, I would have... Um, so I, I think the challenge for them now is to find somebody who is a really, really big hitter somebody who is a genuinely exciting figure. So, um, well, then let's take a brief digression onto the question of leadership. Um, I, I, I've been through uh, what I think is in naffly called a journey. So I obviously began briefly as an infantry officer at the age of 18. I was then a diplomat. I served in the Balkans and Iraq. I set up a charity in Afghanistan. 
And then I came into politics, and it was, without a doubt, the worst experience of my life. I am very, very pleased to have left politics and to be running as an independent to be mayor of London. Why? Because there is something deeply, deeply wrong with the way that our systems are providing leadership. And the problems are immense, but basically the incentives are for nobody to take responsibility for anything. Right? The entire incentives in our system are for people to make great comments, to uh, espouse values, to promise to do things, to come up with three-word slogans, but never ever to say, I'm sorry, it's my fault, I failed to do it, I'm going to sort it out, and if I don't sort it out, I will resign. Right? You never hear it from anybody, at all. The only hope of sorting this out is beginning to have people who take responsibility. And we will only have people who take responsibility if they know something, if they've done something, if they have some form of experience of running things. Right? Otherwise, understandably, they will do what ministers are encouraged to do all the time, which is read their little statements, because to be honest, they can't leave their script because they're terrified that if they leave their script, their ignorance will be resolved. Right? And the thing in, in addition to that is ministers need to get much better if they're going to lead about admitting what they don't know. Right? Brief example of that. When I was the Africa minister, I found myself standing up in the House of Commons having to answer question after question about 34 different countries. What will the minister say about the recent problem in Western Cameroon? What is the minister saying? Uh, what does the minister? What will the minister do about the atrocities in Burundi? What will the minister do about the constitutional crisis in Togo? Right? And I was trained to stand up and say, uh, "We call on all parties to respect the Arusha Accord and UN Resolution 1325, and work with the ex-Prime Minister of Tanzania to resolve the situation in Burundi." But the truthful answer would have been, we don't know. We don't have anybody in Burundi. We don't have anybody in Togo. Right? We have no control whatsoever about the situation here. Right? What kind of country do you think we're living in? Right? When are these MPs going to wake up and appreciate that we have no power and no control of this? So the actual truth is that in my entire journey in government, and I'll finish on this, the real revelation from me was becoming the prisons minister. That was the only job where I finally felt I had some operational control. Came into a situation where violence had tripled over five years, and the first thing I said is, this is a disgrace, this is my fault, I'm going to reduce violence in 12 months, and if I don't, I will resign. Right? And suddenly, for the first time, I felt I was able to help people again. I felt as a public servant I'd found a role where I could actually do something. And the reason that I've left politics, the reason I've become an independent, is I'm trying to get back to my instinct that you can only do it by having your feet on the ground and taking responsibility, right? saying this is what I'll do and if I don't, I'll resign. Well, we'll explore the idea that um, standing for mayor of London is giving up politics in a, in a moment or two. <laughs> 
think that question does take us quite neatly on to broader political points. If people have got other things they want to ask about development, we should have a bit of time at the end. Um, you were less than flattering about the Prime Minister sometimes, uh, particularly during the leadership contest. You'll hear others of your former Conservative colleagues who weren't particularly enamoured of him either, but now say, actually, he's not doing a bad job. Are you one of those? Um, I actually have decided uh, that if I'm going to be mayor of London, I've got to fight London's corner. And that means being sometimes polite to the central government and sometimes challenging towards the central government, but about one issue and one issue only, which is London. Right? The great advantage of being an independent is I don't have to kowtow to the government. And because I'm not the Labour candidate, I don't have to insult them all the time. So what I'm going to try to achieve uh, in my relationship with the Prime Minister is to hold him to what he promised to do on Crossrail 2 and otherwise uh, avoid insulting him unnecessarily in churches in the middle of Piccadilly. Well, that's a bit, a bit glib, isn't it? I mean, it suggests that London has nothing to do with the way the country as a whole works other than when it comes down to Crossrail. Well, if you take the title of um, tonight's session, which is about a global Britain, you would have thought London was absolutely central to that. So you presumably have slightly yeah. broader okay. views. So, so let, 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 me, let, me, let me give an example. Um, I think the key thing is, if I'm lucky enough to become mayor, is to be very, very precise in the way that you criticise and challenge the government. So let's take Brexit, for example. I don't want to be in a world in which I am saying, rah, rah, well done, the government, this is a great success, nor do I want to be in a world of pretending that I'm going to be able to block Brexit after Brexit has happened. I want to be in a world of saying, what exactly are you doing on your immigration policy? How exactly is this going to work for one million European Union citizens? How is this going to work for the West End? How is your financial services legislation going to keep the economy going? What are you doing on your justice and security measures? How do I get London embassies into Brussels, Berlin and Paris to make our arguments to the European Union as well as our arguments to the central government? And how do we make sure that we sell London, not just to Europe, but to the rest of the United Kingdom at a time when this government, Boris Johnson's government, and indeed the entire Labour Party, have turned against London and are selling a whole narrative about Northern England, which is very false to the fundamental truth, which is that we grow and thrive together. This isn't an either-or. But these arguments need to be made with empirical detail, with data, with case studies, and we need to win them one by one. And one of the things I want to try to do in politics is get out of the broad brush stuff that actually I did too much of in the leadership campaign, where I referred to our Prime Minister as a, an elephant, I think, a prancing elephant, right? I don't want to be back in that world. I want to be in a world in which we are really talking very, very calmly and very powerfully about what this country, and in particular what this capital city needs. Well, I, I would like to do that in a moment or two, but can you just look back a little bit and tell me what lessons you draw from what has been an extraordinary period of our politics that you were very directly involved in. Brexit, you said, could not be achieved by whatever it was last October 31st last year. Whatever you think of the Prime Minister's deal, he did one. I mean, looking back on that, what lessons do you yeah. draw, from, draw from that period? So I, I think an, a number of lessons. I think the first one is that, um, w which was a, a big learning point for me, uh, is actually how difficult it is to hold the centre ground in British politics. 
I believe there was a huge gaping hole in the center ground of British politics. And that therefore, after the Brexit uh, referendum, uh, Britain, which I thought was a country for compromise, would come together around a very soft Brexit. And when we ran citizens' assemblies, that's largely what people tended to come up with, a sort of Turkey, Norway, soft Brexit option. And I bet my political career on that. So as somebody who'd voted Remain and campaigned for Remain, I thought, okay, let's try to secure a soft Brexit, because if we don't, we'll end up with a harder Brexit. And I totally failed to win that argument. I obviously didn't win the argument with hard Brexiteers. I didn't win the argument with hard Remainers either. I discovered that instead of what I thought, which is that 80% of people would want a soft Brexit, about 20% of people did, 40% of people wanted nothing to do with the other 40% wanted a hard Brexit. And that is a deep, deep, deep problem in our society. We are somehow falling into, and this is part of the secret of polarization, into a very steep us and them culture war. We find it very difficult to compromise, very difficult to understand each other, very difficult to meet in the middle. And the thing that I don't like about the direction that politics has gone is that everything, and in some ways, Boris has absolutely been vindicated in practical terms in a way that I wasn't. Right? I absolutely believed that you needed to be honest. So I ran a campaign saying, do not promise to, that you can leave by the 31st of October because you can't leave by the 31st of October. Parliament is never going to let you leave by the 31st of October. And if you promise to do it, do or die, you will let people down. They will feel betrayed and they won't vote for you. I was wrong. Well, you've talked this evening quite a lot about the constraints on the exercise of British influence, both in Yemen and Syria and indeed in what you said about Africa. And, and the title of our talk, um, Britain's Global Role in a Post-Brexit World, isn't an accident because the government do talk a lot about global Britain. Do you think that's simply an illusion or is it a genuine aspiration? No, it, it's, largely, um, it's, it's largely, I'm afraid, uh, mistaken. Uh, many of the people who talk about global Britain haven't spent enough time, I feel, recently in other people's countries. I mean, Britain can be, of course, a significant power, but a significant power comparable to France or maybe Germany. Britain is not a power like the United States or China. It does make a sort of sense in the United States to ask what their policy is towards Burundi. It doesn't make a great deal of sense, or not the same sense in Britain. And even the US's position is diminishing in the world. Right? The US position in Africa is not what it was 20 years ago. In Tanzania, Magafuli uh, said uh, that he would refuse to take a call from John Kerry, the US Secretary of State. The US ambassador refused to visit him. He threw the US ambassador out. And the result was that three years later, the US went back into Tanzania with a billion dollars worth of aid, trying to buy their way back. Right? That's a real sign that American power in somewhere like Tanzania is declining dramatically. Chinese power is there, but even Chinese power is probably not what they think. Even in the very poorest countries of the world, and Tanzania is not a wealthy country, people are much more nationalistic than you would think, much less inclined to be bullied by people, however wealthy they are, 
whatever they tell them to do. This is why one of the ideas that you can somehow use your international aid as a lever to force people to do things they don't want to do is not true. If you said to the president of Tanzania, I'm going to take away your 300 million pounds of aid unless you do something, nine times out of 10, he'd say, take the 300 million pounds of aid. I'm not interested. Because the world is changing. So Britain can do things, but it needs to choose where it does them. And broadly speaking, Britain needs to divide the world into four categories of countries. There are countries which are in so much trouble where it is very difficult for Britain to do very much. South Sudan is probably one of these examples. We can provide humanitarian assistance, but it will be very difficult for a country like Britain to pretend it's going to create a peaceful, stable governance situation in South Sudan. At the other extreme are giant countries like Nigeria and Pakistan, where their economies are so big and the countries are so large. It's very difficult to believe that Britain is actually decisively going to be able to shift. Right? Nigeria has a GDP of 500 billion pounds a year. Right? It's very, very difficult for 400 million pounds to make much difference there. And that leaves two categories of country. That leaves fragile states where, and this may be true in Afghanistan in a different way, possibly in countries like Somalia, where it's possible to do something, but again, the security problems are so bad that progress is difficult. Leaving the final category, which are medium-sized states, lower middle-income states, where Britain has a good historical relationship. I'm talking about countries like Ghana, where actually probably, if we had a grown-up relationship, we invested strongly, we had the right diplomatic presence, we had the right development relationship, we had the right trade relationship, actually we could have a very fruitful 10, 20 years. And there are probably 20 countries like that around the world where we should be focusing. But that's the way you think about what it means to be a country about the size of France as opposed to about the size of the United States. And, and what do you make of the argument that Brexit has made it in some ways or should make it easier to strike up those sorts of relationships with countries outside Europe? And you could argue that the immigration policy, for example, last announced last week was an example of Britain striking up new relationships around the world and not just focusing on Europe. Okay, so here the basic point is very simple, which is that ought implies can. You do not have a moral obligation or any kind of obligation to do what you cannot do. And the problem for Britain is that the entire core budget of the Foreign Office is less than half the amount we spend on the winter fuel allowance, right? It is half the amount that the French government spend on their foreign service. In Zambia at the moment, right, which is a Commonwealth country on the edge of middle income where there are enormous number of British interests, would you like to guess how many UK-based British diplomats we have in Zambia? Right. Two. Right. Two. This is the truth of our presence in the world. Brexit, non-Brexit, after Brexit, unless you double the size of the Foreign Office, quadruple the staffing of DFID, radically increase the amount of resources we're putting into these things, these are fantasies. We simply do not have enough people who speak those languages well, who understand enough about those countries, who are spending long enough on the ground, who are deep enough in rural areas, to really get the benefit of these things. If you think about the 
resources that are at the disposal of, well, let's take one cheeky example, since it's on my mind at the moment, right? Uh, we are told at the moment that the mayor of London is powerless, that this is a position with no power, right? That he can't do anything, that everything else is somebody else's fault. But his budget is 18 billion pounds a year. That's bigger than the GDP of 76 countries. If we think that you cannot do very much with 18 billion pounds a year in your own country, when you speak the language, when you have a very stable legal system, when it's safe, when security is good, when you have access to 200 years of data, when there are thousands of civil servants, then think about how little you can really achieve with two British diplomats and a discretionary budget of £150,000 a year for the Foreign Office in Zambia. Are there any questions before we leave the sort of broader political points that anyone would like to ask Rory Street? Yes, there's a lady uh, there, if you could, in a red, uh, red jersey, I think. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Marigold Bentley. I'm Head of Peace Programs, Faith Relations for Quakers in Britain, and Quakers are a sponsoring Church of Christian Aid. My question is twofold. Uh, it's largely about the arms trade, the British arms trade, and your views of it. And if you were elected Mayor of London, what would you do about DICE, D-S-E-I, the biannual international arms fair hosted in London? Goodness. Okay, good. <laughs> um, uh, I, th I think this is a, a very, very, very big problem, and I do not have any good answer to it. I think the only thing that I would observe as somebody who was a Member of Parliament in Cumbria uh, and spent a little bit of time looking at Barrow, which is where the British uh, the BAE systems, one of the big BAE systems based, is just how deeply embedded this industry is in the British economy and how much our military depends on our arms sales. So one, one of the things that isn't very clear to people is that the reason that we're able to get away with only spending 2% of our GDP on defense is that the equipment that we use for our military is cross-subsidized by producing this equipment for customers like Saudi Arabia. And that is then what leads on to 100,000 jobs and tens of billions of pounds a year of income. So, I would have thought, ultimately, ethically, it is very difficult for us as a country, ultimately, to defend the idea that we are subsidizing our military and subsidizing our economy to the extent to which we are off the back of selling arms in this way. But if we want to transition out of that industry, we have to be very, very honest about what we are transitioning to, where the new jobs are going to come from, how we're going to keep our armed forces going, how they're going to be funded, and where the equipment that our armed forces is using is coming from, almost certainly bought from the United States. However, that said, it seems to me that the argument that the Quakers are making is one that is going to be increasingly pressing. I think it's very unlikely that in 20 or 30 years' time, people who are currently in their teens or their 20s are going to want to continue to live in a country that is so heavily dependent 
on the international arms trade. And I think these ethical issues are rising, and I think the political challenge for Britain is how does it make the transition away? Because we are going to become a country whose values are going to become necessarily greener, more ethical, more focused on human rights, more focused, I hope, on international development. In other words, I think we're going to become, to put it in one word, we're going to become more Nordic. We're going to become more Scandinavian in our values. And that will probably mean that these things will seem like an anachronism that we will become ashamed of, and we need to transition away from them. Um, there are a few observations that I was asked to, to make. You, you mentioned, Rory, at the beginning of your interventions that you know, we needed to ask ourselves some brutal questions. And I think that that's what we've been doing. Uh, I think as, uh, as Christian Aid, uh, having been working in this area of relief and development for the last 75 years, as you observed yourself, uh, we are connected both here in the UK but also with the communities that we work in. And even when it's really, really difficult, we've stayed the course. Um, we've stayed the course in South Sudan, um, in Afghanistan, in DRC, uh, in the Middle East. And sometimes uh, our staff, uh, we, you know, we fear for their, for their lives um, as they work in such difficult uh, situations. We know that uh, even where we are there is shrinking civil society space and uh, our, inability, you know, our ability to actually function and deliver in humanitarian situations is threatened. We still choose every time, every day, we are on the side of the downtrodden. And that is uh, who Christian Aid is. But for us to do that, you talked about leadership. For us to do that, it is better when the UK government and its leadership on the global platform is a credible one. When we talk about climate change, it can only be credible if they're not just able to change at home in terms of renewable energies and net zero, but also in terms of the investments that they make, and I think you talked about this. The investments in fossil fuels, extractive industries, mining companies, protecting um, those companies that seek refuge in, 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 in safe tax havens. All those issues have to come to a place where the UK government can legitimately and proudly say that they're not part of such kind of investments. It would be very difficult for me uh, in my privileged position if I didn't refer to the issue that you talked about in terms of selling arms. And thank you for being very candid uh, with your analysis about that. Uh, Chris and Aid last year was very open and very vocal around the issue of selling arms to Saudi Arabia, uh, the British government selling arms to Saudi Arabia. And uh, while it might take another 10, 20 years for, the, for there to be a generation change so that we can have those that are opposed, those that uh, find this shameful, the, young, the children in the Yemen are dying as we speak. They don't have 10 to 20 years of waiting. And so I want to come back and sort of finalize my observation by saying, as the COP26 is coming to the UK um, in November, it is that credibility of a leadership 
that can mobilize and inspire others to want to do better. That's the quality that we are looking for. And that is the quality that the UK government has to provide for us as a Christian aid, for the sector, but also for those countries that you were talking about who would otherwise turn away and say, well, I really don't care. That's what they're looking at. It's not just the power of the money, but it's the power of persuasion, of a persuasion that is actually founded and grounded in, uh, in, in good values. And I'm hoping and I'm looking forward to seeing that uh, when the British government hosts COP uh, this year. As I leave this evening in preparation for going to um, the Commission on the Status of Women that is taking place in next month in New York, where yet again we are looking at issues of women's rights, we're looking at issues of gender-based violence, um, we're looking at issues of child marriages. Uh, I, go, I go there knowing that um, with the aid that we get from the British government, we're able to reach those young people. And you're absolutely right. It's not good enough just for us to take the numbers of young people going to school. They have to get a good quality education. They have to be able to be independent and be able to live their life and live it in its fullness. And so I want to end by saying thank you so much for having brought yourself completely into this conversation. I hope that everybody else who attended feels that you were candid, that you put yourself out there. And while I'm not a politician with a capital P, my politics is the politics of social justice. I'm concerned both of people at home who are homeless and those abroad who I work with who are equally homeless. I wish you all the best and um, may the best person win. Thank you. <laughs>